Well, good morning. I'm thankful to be here gathered together this morning. I know the Christmas season is often a busy and hectic and chaotic time for a lot of folks, so we are thankful for those of you that have chosen to worship here with us this morning. I hope you enjoyed uh, the holiday yesterday. Listen, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians is found in the New Testament. It is uh, between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. It is the ninth book of the New Testament. Give you a second to get there. If you're having trouble, you can ask the person next to you. Maybe they can help you find it. That's okay. There's no shame in asking for help, right? We're going to look at Galatians 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 10 this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So what I want to do is read this text, and then I'll pray and ask God to uh, be at work during this time through the teaching of his word. So let us read Galatians 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as once again we come before you totally dependent upon you, needing you to move in this place this morning. God, as I have the incredible task of teaching from your word, uh, Father, I ask that you would use me for your glory. God, that as we have this time of teaching, sitting under the authority of the written and revealed word, the power of the scriptures, God, help us to understand uh, what this text means. Help us to see the truth in it. Help us to see what we can't see on our own. Father, help us to see the power of the gospel and our need to cling to it. Father, I pray that we would be challenged by this time, yet encouraged by it as well. And Father, I pray that through it all, you would be glorified. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Christmas Day has come and gone, hasn't it? Just like that. It's all over the world. People are even still experiencing the joy of receiving those wonderful gifts that they got yesterday morning, right? There's a really wonderful feeling that we receive when we get something we've desperately longed for, isn't it? 
It's a great feeling of joy when you open that present, that, uh, that wonderful gift that your family member has surprised you with. Maybe something you asked for, maybe something you didn't, but it's just a wonderful present, a wonderful gift that we've been given. There's a wonderful feeling that is certainly associated with that. However, it's quite a different story when somebody gives you something that you didn't want or something that you do not like, right? It's not the same feeling that's associated with that. Well, fortunately, as long as you have that gift receipt, you can take that thing back and exchange it for something else, right? You can always go back to the store and trade that in for something that you really like. In fact, there are, I bet there are a few people in here right now that hope I hurry up so you can get to the store and exchange whatever it is you were given yesterday that you didn't really want, and that's okay too. Listen, it's, it's very easy for us to trade things out because we have so many options at our disposal, And this extends beyond the gift giving during the holiday season, right? If you don't like your car, you can always go trade that in and get another one. You don't like the house you're living in? Cool, man. You can uh, sell that, put it on the market, sell it, go buy another house in a different location, right? You don't like your spouse? Tired of arguing with them? Man, divorce your spouse and get another one. Actually, don't do that. Side note, please don't do that. Work it out. Find us. We'll talk to you about it. If you hate your job, you can quit that too, right? Just quit your job and go find another one. See, as human beings that are often dissatisfied, we are constantly trading in one thing for another. Because there are so many things that present themselves as better options, we are easily persuaded to swap out the things we have for something else. You see, as the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia, it quickly becomes evident that they too have made some sort of exchange. They have traded what they had for something else. You see, there were those amongst the Galatians that had perverted and distorted the gospel message. They had become adding conditions to the salvation that Christ provides And as a result, they had exchanged the gospel of Jesus Christ for another gospel, a different gospel. But here's the reality. Here's the issue. There is no other gospel. You can bold that. You can underline it. You can put an exclamation point at the end of the paragraph, the end of the sentence. That is it. There is no other gospel. Listen, if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, please hear this. There is only one gospel, no others. There is only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that says he has laid down his life for yours, bearing your sins, and that he on the third day rose again, conquering sin and death. It is only this message that is sufficient to save. Nothing else will do, period. Now, I wish I could stand here and tell you that the problem the Galatians were facing was exclusive to them, to their day and time. However, we can certainly see in our day where many people begin to distort the truth of the gospel and they stray away from the message of Christ, following cheap and empty imitations. Listen, there are so many things masquerading as the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these movements, these messages, these theories, these ideologies, but not a single one of them has the power 
to save. I don't care how great the message is. I don't care how good it makes you feel. I don't care how many people follow it, how many people subscribe to it. Anything other than Christ dying for sinners is not the gospel, and it offers us no eternal hope. You see, this is the great danger, though, with false teachings. They present themselves to be true, and they're often very similar to the message of truth. They seem to align with the Scriptures on the surface, on the surface. but anything other than the gospel that is preached to us through the written and revealed Scriptures is only a cheap imitation. See, this is important for us to understand. All these other messages are powerless to save. This is why Paul writes to the churches here in Galatia to warn them, to admonish them for turning away from the one true gospel. He understood the importance of this. He understood the urgency of them maintaining the true gospel. See, brothers and sisters, as those that have been saved by the blood of Christ according to his gospel, we too are called to protect, to preserve, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not something we can be passive about. There's too much at stake. So I've titled this sermon, simply put, No Other Gospel. No other gospel. And my aim, my goal this morning is that we would understand the truth of the gospel. We would preserve the message of the gospel and we would proclaim the gospel for the glory of God. So those are my three points. I have three simple points this morning. Number one, sinners are redeemed by the gospel. Sinners are redeemed by the gospel. Number two, believers are called to preserve the gospel. Believers are called to preserve the gospel. And number three, we must consider our motives when sharing the gospel. Those are our three points. So with that framework in mind, let's walk through these verses together. Point number one, sinners are redeemed by the gospel. And we see that in verses one through five. See, Paul is writing this letter to the churches there at the Galatia. And he isn't simply writing to check in on them. He's not writing to commend them for how faithful they've been to their, in their service to the Lord and to the church. See, Paul has a specific purpose for writing. His aim is to rebuke this group of believers, to draw them back to the foundational truths of the gospel message that they've walked away from. You see, Paul had delivered to them what he also had delivered to the church in Corinth. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Friends, this is the gospel message. This is the message that Paul had taught the believers there in Galatia. However, there were a group of Judaizers that had come in in Paul's absence, and they began adding to this gospel. They'd been bringing amendments to the gospel message. You see, they would claim that what Paul had taught about Jesus was indeed accurate and true. But in addition to believing in Christ, they would tell those believers, you also must adhere to the Mosaic law. See, they attempted to persuade this group of believers and to discredit Paul's message. And one of the best ways you can discredit a message or the legitimacy of a message is to deny the authority of the messenger. 
And apparently this is what this group of Judaizers had done. They had convinced the Galatians that Paul was a self-appointed apostle. This is why Paul opens his letter by defending his apostleship. He says, I am an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see, Paul's authority to teach was derived from the fact that Christ himself had appointed Paul to the position of apostle. If you recall Paul's conversion, his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, I'm sure we're all familiar with that encounter. If you're not, it can be found in the book of Acts. So Paul was appointed by Christ himself to be an apostle. And before we continue on, I think it's important that we understand what does the word apostle mean, right? How do we use this word? What does that mean? Well, there are two types, two ways that we can use the word apostle, right? We can use it to, number one, refer to essentially one of the 12, right? One of Jesus's 12 disciples, one of the 12 men that walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They witnessed his time here on earth, listened to his teaching, Right? Or even those individuals that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and his ministry post-resurrection. Or one like Paul who was chosen by Christ, encountered Christ, specifically chosen by him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the, the last of all as one untimely born, Christ had also appeared to him. So we understand that we can use apostle, let's, we'll just call it a big A apostle, as those who were with Christ, called by him to teach, to uh, establish the church, the apostolic foundational teaching of the church, right? And we believe that that apostle or that office of apostle is no longer active, right? Again, it was used to teach and establish the church in the first century. So we can use apostle that way, or we can look at what the word actually means, and it literally translates to one that is sent, a sent one, right? So in that sense of the word, every believer is indeed an apostle, but not in the sense that maybe Peter or John or Paul would have been. I don't identify myself as Apostle Brandon or Apostle Tyler or Apostle Gabe. If they start walking around saying that, you let me know and we'll talk about that thing, okay? So anyway, that's how we can define the word apostle. That's how we can uh, look at that word. So Paul is an apostle, a big A apostle that was chosen specifically by Christ. And here he reminds them of that. He reminds them of his God-given position, that he was appointed by Jesus, not by man, See, there was no laying on of hands. There were no ceremonies for Paul. The only hand that was on Paul was the hand of God that had called him specifically to put him in that position, the office of apostle. You see, this is what validates Paul's message. For this reason, his teaching was authoritative. See, Paul had a superior calling than any of the Judaizers. They were self-appointed. Paul was appointed by Christ. I want you to notice something here as we look at these first couple of verses. Paul's greeting is so brief. It is so abrupt. It's not filled with all of the uh, pleasantries and commendation that you would normally find in the opening of one of Paul's letters, right? He's not giving thanks for them or praising them for what they've done. See, instead, Paul is ready to address the issue at hand. In verse 3, Paul extends grace and peace to them, and then that's it. Then he initially and immediately reminds them of the truth of the gospel message. Verses 3 and 4 says, grace to you 
and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, I want to put emphasis on verse 4 here because this is the heart of the gospel message. Christ gave himself for our sins. See, this is the core of the matter. This is the central and essential truth of the gospel, Christ dying for sinners. See, the apostle Paul had a one-track mind. He was gospel-minded. He was consumed by Christ. This is why he doesn't make it very far into this letter before he directs our attention to the gospel, the most important person of the gospel, in fact, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who is central to this message of salvation and deliverance. Paul says that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Friends, this is the glorious message of the gospel. It redeems and saves sinners. Christ gave himself for your freedom. Christ, the perfect Son of God, taking to the cross, willingly laying down his life, bearing the sins of the world, bringing eternal life and forgiveness and redemption to all those that believe. This is the gospel of grace by which sinners are saved. Nothing else. You see, we're reminded of the distinct and exclusive saving power of Christ in Acts 4.12, which says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other, name, or no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, we're foolish if we look elsewhere. Our hope is only in Christ. He alone brings salvation to the lost. The truth is, if we alter this message in any way, if we deviate from it, even in the slightest fashion, we have completely compromised the gospel. We have constructed a message that has no power to save. And here's why. Because the power to save lies within the person that is central to the message of doing the saving, and that is Christ Jesus. It is by him giving himself for our sins that we are delivered. This couldn't have been accomplished in any other way, in anyone or anything else. It's not in our own abilities. There's no freedom or deliverance in society or its systems. You won't find redemption in politicians, athletes, or entertainers. It is in Christ and Christ alone. You see, Paul writes in Romans 1.16, a verse I'm sure we're all very familiar with. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Brothers and sisters, the reality is this. Roman, Romans 1.16 has not ceased to be true. The gospel still has the power to save and redeem sinners even today. See, God is still working through the faithful proclamation of his word to bring sinners to repentance. He is still giving life to the dead. He is still redeeming the lost. Do you believe that this morning? Are you living as though you believe that this morning? Are you living as though Jesus is the risen king with the power to save? Is that foundational in all that you do? See, I think so many people are confused about why Jesus came and the purpose of the gospel. See, the purpose of the gospel is our 
deliverance. Jesus' death was a rescue operation, if you will. It was the only means of saving sinful men who were doomed to death and destruction. You see, when verse 4 uses the word deliver, that carries with it an idea of rescuing someone from danger. See, if the gospel, the one true gospel, the message that Christ died for sinners is the only way in which a man can be saved from the wages of sin, this is the message that we must preach and proclaim. See, verse 4 says Christ died to deliver us from the present evil age. So maybe you're saying, well, what does that mean? What is meant by that statement? Well, I think Pastor John MacArthur is helpful in understanding what is meant here. And he says this, age does not refer to a period of time, but to a passing transitory system. In this case, the evil satanic world system that has dominated the world since the fall and will continue to dominate until the Lord's return. So he's talking about the effects of living in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And it says that Christ has delivered us from this present evil age. So what this means for believers is that at the moment we receive Jesus, we are rescued from this evil age and delivered from the eternal penalties of sin. We are no longer under the rule and authority of sin. Now, it doesn't mean we won't sin and make mistakes. That doesn't mean we won't stumble. In fact, we're very much still in this world, but we are now not of this world. Brothers and sisters, that means that there is a present value to the gospel. It is not simply for our future redemption or glorification. We can walk in the power of the gospel and the newness of life today. Amen? Amen. See, and according to verse 4, it tells us that this is the beautiful part. This is all according to his will. It's all according to to God's will. See, salvation is from the mind of God. The source of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ is the sovereign, loving, and compassionate will of God. And this should be a great comfort to us. This should give us great encouragement today because God is not forced to redeem sinners. This is not something that he has to do. It is God's divine will and desire to save men. God has a passion for communion with his creation. You see, salvation is not what we deserve. It's what God desires. It's what he so graciously gifts to us. You see, and for this reason, the Apostle Paul, who is motivated by God's grace and love, he can't help but exalt and bless the name of the Lord here. He points to the glory, or excuse me, he points the glory and the praise to the one whom it is due. He says, God the Father, he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what a simple yet beautiful doxology that is. Glory to God for sending his Son to save sinners. You see, the gospel tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That God's created us as part of his perfect order of creation, but sin entered the world corrupting God's creation. The gospel tells us that God in his love and mercy out of his gracious and loving nature, he puts forth his son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. It is by grace through faith in Christ that we are saved. 
There's nothing that we can add to or take away from this message. Christ gave himself. There's nothing greater he could have given. What a glorious reality that is. And it is only this message, this gospel, that redeems the lost. That's point number one, that sinners are redeemed by this gospel message. Point number two, believers must preserve the gospel. We see that in verses 6 through 9. Actually, there's a lot happening in verses 6 through 9. See, the apostle Paul, after this brief greeting to the churches in Galatia, he quickly moves to the matter at hand. Paul writes with a sense of urgency, and he wastes no time getting to the issue. Verses 6 through 9, I'll read them quickly. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You see, Paul could not understand how these Galatian believers were so quickly abandoning his apostolic teaching. He says, I am astonished. Or maybe the version that you have says, I marvel. And I think we're all familiar with the word marvel, right, from all of the Marvel movies. And those are cinematic masterpieces with the special effects, and they're just, they're massive productions made to make you say, wow, to make you marvel, right? Well, that's not what Paul means here. He's not marveling because he's impressed by what he's seeing. He is astounded. He is perplexed. He is bewildered because he can't understand how a group of believers would encounter Christ Jesus and all of his saving glory and turn to something else. Paul is astonished here. This is beyond his comprehension. See, how can you know the gospel of grace? How can you meet Jesus in all of his saving splendor? in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, and understand this gospel of freedom and turn to anything else that's not a comparable exchange. Turning to anything other than Christ Jesus is empty. It's useless. It will not save. There's an encounter in John chapter 6. See, in John 6, Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And then the next day, the crowd is looking for Jesus. They're following him, trying to figure out where he's at. And Jesus, because he's God, he's all-knowing. He understands their intentions. He knows their hearts. And they're only seeking him because they've eaten their fill of the loaves, and they've had their bellies full. See, Jesus then challenges them in, uh, to what real communion and real relationship with him looks like. And he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you would have any parts of me. These are really difficult sayings. So what happens? That whole group of people, they depart from him and they leave. Like, man, that's not what we signed up for. You're a useful guy. You can feed us. You can heal our diseases. That's what we want, Jesus. We don't want that. So Jesus runs them off. And then he turns in verses 66 and 68, and he's asked his disciples, do you want to leave too? It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? 
And Simon Peter answered him. Sometimes Peter got it right. Simon Peter answers him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And to whom shall we go? In other words, where else can we turn? Who else can save us? See, Peter had an accurate understanding of Christ and salvation. He knew the eternal life and deliverance could only be found in Christ. Why would we turn elsewhere? You see, my hope for each of us as believers, as the body of Christ, is that we would understand the exclusive saving power of Christ and his gospel. Friends, there's nowhere else we can go. You see, the world offers no hopes of salvation. It's just amazing how many professing Christians turn away. They look to the world to save them. They look to government. They look to philosophies and relationships and material possessions and all of these other things. Where else can we go? Why would you turn away? So here's a great place for us to make this personal, for us to apply this individually. Have you wandered from the truth of the gospel? Have you begun to look elsewhere? Philosophies, myths, fallacies. Have you turned from the gospel of Jesus Christ to something else? It's only Christ Jesus that saves. Eternal life is only found in him. I want you to notice something here that Paul says, Paul is not astonished by the false teachers, those who crept in and perverted the gospel. He's not shocked by this. In fact, this is to be expected. The scriptures consistently warn us of the danger and reality of false teachers. There are plenty of verses that I could point you to. I'm just going to read a couple briefly. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Second Timothy verse four, or chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Finally, Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing up uh, upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Again, that's not an exhaustive, exhaustive list, just a few verses, but it's clear the Bible warns us that false teaching is a reality. That is why Paul is not astonished by what he's seeing. We can expect to encounter false teachers. We have a people, or we have to be a people who's dedicated to defending gospel truth. See, Paul wasn't astonished by the manipulation of the Judaizers as we shouldn't be shocked either. See, Paul says he is more astounded that believers would turn away from the gospel that they'd been taught. 
And what are they actually turning to? What are these believers turning to here? It says that they've turned to, quote, a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So Paul says they've turned to a different gospel. In the Greek language, there are two words that mean other or another. You see, one of these words for other or another refers to another of the same kind. But then the other Greek word that's used for other or another refers to another of a different kind. See, if you think back to John 14, Jesus says, I will send you another comforter, right? That's the word that Jesus uses, another of the same kind. That's not the word that Paul uses here. He says in verse 7, not that there is another gospel. He's saying that the gospel that they have turned to is another of a different kind. It's something different altogether. It is not the same thing. Listen, anytime you add to or take away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus given for sinners salvation by grace through faith in Christ, you've created something totally different. Something totally different. And this is exactly what the Judaizers had done. They had perverted the gospel. See, they claimed to be followers of Christ, a lot of them, and much of their doctrine was indeed orthodox. They most likely believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They even acknowledged his sacrificial death and resurrection. We're not to believe that they overtly opposed the gospel or else they wouldn't have been able to stand before the church. They wouldn't have been able to enter into those churches in Galatia. So they didn't oppose the gospel openly. They simply looked to improve upon the gospel with all of their traditions and requirements and ceremonies. They looked to add things to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, they had a Jesus plus theology. It was like, yes, Jesus is life, death, and resurrection. That's great. You, but you need that plus you need to keep the law. Plus you need good, good works. Plus you need to be circumcised. Plus, plus, plus. Right? They had a Jesus plus theology. See, they were denying what is foundational to the gospel, and that is the doctrine of grace. See, the, uh, the gospel isn't the gospel without grace. You see, that's the beautiful truth of the gospel message, is that we're saved apart from the works of men. We're saved apart from our own personal merit. You see, consider what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, we are saved by the grace of God. And it is not only the grace of God by which we are saved, but it is the grace of God in which we can stand. And it's important that we get this right. See, if we get the gospel wrong, people will perish. This is no small thing. This is not something to be cavalier about. Again, Paul understood the urgency of this matter, which is why he writes here warning them, saying, man, you've turned to something completely different. It is not the gospel because there is no other gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus has the power to save. Friends, that's why we champion the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's perfection. We don't stand by idly as people hijack the gospel and manipulate it. 
It has the power to save just as it is. There's no need to compromise it or add to it. Friends, we must preserve this message. That is our duty to stand against any distortion, any perversions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you better believe nowadays there are plenty of variations of the gospel. There are plenty of people parading with the gospel message, but it's not biblical gospel truth. See, people call everything the gospel now. They call everything the gospel. There are plenty of false gospels in 2021. Now, I don't have time to stand here and go through every single one of them. But what I want to do is briefly, and I mean briefly, just give you three that I think are very prominent, that are very dangerous, that a lot of people hold to, self-proclaimed, professing Christians hold to, and they don't understand that what they're hearing and what they're believing isn't biblical truth. So I just want to give you three very briefly. Number one is the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel. And this gospel says that Jesus died so we would live our best lives now. That Christ took to the cross so you can have health, wealth, and prosperity. A big house, a Bentley in the driveway, a full bank account. You'll never get sick. But unfortunately, when I read the Bible, I see where Jesus says in this world, we will have trouble. Or when Jesus says, the poor you will always have amongst you. See, that flies in the face of the prosperity gospel. But I believe there are many within the church that hold to this gospel. Number two is the moral gospel or the gospel of moralism. You see, this gospel maintains the belief that as long as you're a good person and you're nice to everyone, when you stand before God on judgment day, you'll be good. See, because your good outweighs your bad and you'll be fine. You are a nice, good person. There's another problem I have with that is the Bible tells me that there are none that are good. None of us are righteous, that our hearts are actually wicked, tells us that we can't be good. That's why we need a mediator. That's why we need a savior. But again, there are so many that cling to this idea of moralism, just be good. Finally, number three is the social gospel. And this one is so popular right now. And it seems to be gaining more popularity every single day. There are many believers, and I'll even get, go so far as to say a lot of them have good intentions, right? They think that what they're doing is right, but they're being taken by this philosophy. The social gospel claims that Jesus died to reform society, to fix all of the problems that society faces. The claim is that he came to usher in equity and equality and to end poverty and systemic oppression, you see, this gospel claims that Christ died to shift power from one group of people to another group of people. And there's just one problem I have with that. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. I can't find that in my Bible. Maybe I have the wrong version. I don't know if, I don't know. I don't see that anywhere. See, Jesus didn't come to reform society. He came to redeem sinners. He didn't come to uh, end inequity. He came to cover our iniquity. There's a big difference there. You see, the one and only authentic biblical gospel message is Christ dying for sinners. Listen, I don't care how great the message is. I don't care how close it is to the truth. 
And again, that's the problem with false teaching. It's very close, it seems, right? I don't care how close it is. If it is not Christ dying for your salvation, Christ giving his life for sinners so that men could be saved, it is not the gospel. There's so many twisting and manipulating this message right now, and they do it in such a deceptive fashion that it's very appealing. And that's why Satan appears at an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And what we don't realize is that we're getting these messages that are inauthentic. They're counterfeit. They're knockoffs. They're fakes. Man, some people that know me know I I love Jordans, right? I love Jordan shoes. I can't really afford them, but I do like them. And so you can go to the store and buy a pair of Jordans for two, three hundred dollars, or you can go to the guy in the plaza and get them for like fifty. And you'll go down there and you'll look at them and they look exactly the same, right? But there's one difference. See, when you open up that shoe and you look at the tongue, there's a number on that barcode and it should match the model number. So apparently there's a website you can go and you can enter the number and it'll tell you, yeah, these are the Jordan 11 Concords. So if you enter that number and it doesn't match, then you know you got a fake pair. See, that's how you spot one that is inauthentic. See, a lot of us don't realize, but we're getting a counterfeit gospel from certain churches, from certain preachers, we are getting fake messages. See, the the way to understand it is to study the real thing. You know, you think about uh, officers, right, who uh, invest or, or study money, right? There's counterfeiting money. They don't study the counterfeit bills. They study real bills. So they understand the difference there, right? I guess for me, I, I need to study real Jordans and what they look like to know the difference. They get, one guy's got Jordan on the side doing a toe touch, and he's doing the full split like, bro, those ain't real. Come on, man. We need to study what is authentic, the real message of the gospel. See, we are often persuaded to believe that everything is the gospel, and everything is a gospel issue. That is simply not true. The only thing that is a gospel issue is the lostness of man and how he can be saved. That's it. Now, these other things might be great secondary issues. They might even be worth our time and attention, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is Christ Jesus and him crucified. We must get this right, and we must preserve this truth against any and every distortion. And see, that's why Paul again writes here, and he says in verses 8 and 9, if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Brothers and sisters, this is strong language. This is a sharp rebuke. Even if Paul himself were to come to these believers with a different message, one contrary to Christ Jesus, they are not to listen to him. Even an angel from heaven is to be rejected should he come preaching a different gospel. Brothers and sisters, here's the truth of the matter. Human messengers have no right to change the gospel. Heavenly messengers have no right to change the gospel. I want you to think of a messenger in that day, right? The king would call his messenger, and then he would give him a specific message to take to someone and deliver it. Now, if that messenger halfway on his journey says, you know what, I'm going to change that message, and I'm going to deliver the message I want to give to this individual, man, he's better off just hiding somewhere, because once that king finds out, he's in trouble. 
He wouldn't have the nerve to alter the message of his king. But it appears that that is what we have amongst us, those who are changing the message of Christ. So this is why we must be careful of the people we allow to influence us. We cannot be taken by all of these special revelations. You see, when people come to me and said, God told me, I'm often very leery of what they say next. Like, I don't care about visions or new revelations or what you feel like God is telling you. Listen, don't get me wrong. All of that is wonderful. All of that is great. But does it align with the Bible? Does it square with the word of God? Is what you claim to have heard from God contrary to the scriptures? Brothers and sisters, here's a good rule of thumb. If it doesn't line up with the word of God, don't throw your Bible out. Throw your feelings out. Throw whatever out, whatever you just heard, throw that out. If it doesn't line up with the word of God. See, brothers and sisters, we must preserve the one true gospel message that's been delivered to us according to the scriptures. Again, if we get the gospel wrong, people will perish. We're leading them astray. Paul says here that these false teachers are left to God's judgment. They are a curse. See, the Greek word that's used there is anathema. It means they're damned. It means they're condemned. They are devoted to destruction. Most importantly for us, that means that they are to be avoided. Those false teachers are to be avoided. We must preserve what we have in Christ Jesus, this gospel that saves. See, Paul writes to young Timothy, and he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. See, people even try to lead you astray by telling you that what they have for you is knowledge. They'll call it knowledge. But Paul tells Timothy, he says, guard what's been given to you, namely the gospel message. This is our responsibility as God's people. As those saved by the blood of Christ, we must preserve the one true gospel. And this is going to be difficult because this will require you to have some difficult conversations. This may require confrontation. We must preach the gospel with the intention of saving souls, not making friends. And this brings me to my final point, point number three. We must check our motives for sharing the gospel. Let's look at verse 10. Paul says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see here, Paul reminds the Galatians that his ultimate allegiance is to Christ Jesus. You may be wondering, well, why is this necessary? Maybe this verse feels a bit out of place to you. As we had said before, the Judaizers had attacked Paul's credentials, claiming that he wasn't authorized to teach and preach as an apostle. One of the accusations that they had made against Paul was that he was watering down the gospel, that he was making it easy for people to be saved, that he was simply saying what men wanted to hear, as if Paul had become an ear-tickling preacher. See, Paul couldn't be any clearer right here than he is in verse 10. He says, I have no desire for the approval 
of men. Why? Because I am a bond servant of Christ. Now, the word is servant in, ESV, in the ESV. The more accurate translation would be slave. It would be the word slave. Paul is a slave to Christ. He has completely surrendered his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's cost him dearly. This has been incredibly costly for Paul. In fact, later in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Those marks on Paul's body were for him being stoned at Lystra for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The marks that Paul bears on his body were from Paul being beaten on multiple occasions for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is what Paul had endured for his commitment to the Lord Jesus. And aside from even the physical abuse that he had endured, remember the life that Paul walked away from because of Christ Jesus. Paul had a lot going for him. I mean, he had a really impressive resume. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, does this sound like a man that desires the approval or applause of mankind? I don't think it does. And again, here's where we can make this really applicable for ourselves. What is our rationale for sharing the gospel? What is our motivation behind it? Do we have a genuine desire to honor God and see the lost come to repentance? Or are we seeking the approval and favor of others? Are we compromising the gospel message in order to save face, save face and make friends? Listen, I am not above the implications of this text. As a pastor, every time I step on this platform, I have to ask myself the question, who am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? And this becomes especially difficult when I'm confronted with hard and difficult verses, when there are difficult truths that I'm facing. And I say, man, if I preach that, God, people may leave the church. If I preach that, people may stop talking to me. They may not like me anymore. God, I can't preach that. Then I have to remind myself, man, I'm not preaching so that people pat me on the back or applaud me or shake my hand or come up to me and tell me how great I've done. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that if that's your motivation for doing things, man, you've already received your reward. You've already gotten what you wanted. If your desire is the applause of man, that will be your reward. That will be what you receive. And listen, I get it. It's in our nature, right? We love to be applauded. We like to make friends. We want to be comfortable. We like to avoid conflict and ridicule whenever we can. We often default to people pleasing. I know I do it. We all do it. But see, the desire to please man is incompatible with being a servant of Christ. Those two ideas are not only incompatible, they're actually at odds with one another. You can't seek to please man and to follow and honor Jesus Christ. You cannot do both. And believe me, here's the reality. If you are truly following Christ Jesus, if you've truly surrendered to him and you're living for him, 
then the time is going to come where your commitment is tested and you'll have to make a decision. What's it going to be? What will win out in this situation? Will it be my convenience or my conviction? Which one will triumph? Do I want to see men saved and forgiven or do I only want their favor? See, as we prepare to close our time, I wanted to end our time by reminding us of what we've discussed, but also challenging us to a few things, uh, uh, simple exhortations here as we end our time together. I want to remind us that the gospel is enough. It is sufficient to save sinners. Listen, if you're here today and you're a believer, thank God that he provided you with the opportunity to hear the gospel preached. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been regenerated, born again, brought into the family of God. It's the power of the gospel to save. Number two, I want to remind us that it is our duty as those that have been saved as the bride of Christ. Christ, We have a duty to preserve the gospel message just as it is. We cannot add to it. We cannot take anything from it. Friends, we must push back against those who attempt to distort it. We must stand for gospel truth. And number three, finally, I want to challenge each of us in this room today to examine our reasons for sharing the gospel. And this is where we'll end, and this is where we can really make this personal. Maybe you're here this morning and you have no problem sharing the gospel. You say, yep, I'll do that anytime. I share the gospel with my friends, my family members, my neighbors, my coworkers. Maybe you have no problem sharing the gospel. But as you sit here today, if you're really honest with yourself, you say, you know what? But I've done so in such a compromised fashion as to avoid conflict, as to avoid opposition because I don't want to offend anyone. And by the way, the gospel's supposed to be offensive because it tells men that they can do nothing. They're totally dependent upon God. The gospel's supposed to be offensive. That's another sermon for another day. Maybe that's you in here this morning. You say, yep, I know I've shared, but I've done it in a way that I've tiptoed. I've walked very lightly because I don't want to offend anybody. Or maybe you're in here and you don't share the gospel at all. Maybe you're a professing believer and you say, I don't share the gospel at all because I'm scared to lose friendships, because I want to keep the favor of man. So you've decided, well, I just won't talk about Jesus at all because these relationships matter to me. I'm worried about confrontation. If that's the case, I want to challenge you. If you're either of those individuals in this room today, I want to challenge you to two things. Number one, I want to challenge you to stand up, to stand up and be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know a lot of us in here, in, inside the body of Christ in the church, will look at the world around us and say, man, things are terrible out there. And you're right, things are terrible. We see the effects of sin all over. But one of the reasons things are, such, are, are deteriorating in such a terrible fashion is because we as Christians aren't doing what we're called to do. We're not preaching the gospel. We're not challenging and pushing back against all of these false ideologies, against all of these false messages, and standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what God calls us to do. Brothers and sisters, it's not time for us to hide and run. We are not to capitulate or cower in fear. We are to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, I want to challenge you to speak up. 
right? We must get to the gospel. Men need to know that they're lost and that salvation and hope is only found in Christ Jesus. He's the only means of redemption. I want to challenge you to stand up, but to also speak up. And so here's how we can end our time together. This is what I want you to think about. And this applies to me too. We just celebrated the holidays. We had Thanksgiving about a month ago. Christmas was yesterday. Maybe you sat around the dinner table with some family that you don't often get to see. Maybe some of you were going home to the town you grew up in, and maybe you see some of the people that you graduated from high school with, some old friends of yours, and you know they're not saved. You know they're not believers. Maybe you have some family members, right, folks in your family that you know don't believe the gospel. Maybe they're holding to one of these other gospels that I've mentioned. And maybe you just spent time with them yesterday on on Christmas Day, and you had an opportunity where you could have shared the gospel, where you could have pushed back on some things, but you didn't. Maybe for you what it looks like is following up on that conversation. Maybe what it looks like is reaching out to that individual that you grew up with, or reaching out to that family member and setting up a time to just sit down and talk to them. Right? There's, a right, we, there's a, a right and a wrong way that we can share truth. Right? As Christians, as God's people, we're committed to grace and truth. Right? There's a loving way we can challenge people. So maybe you go back and you start that conversation. Maybe you reach out to that person. You know, again, I was telling a few of you that I'm about to head out as, as soon as service is over, and I'm going to go spend four or five days with a lot of my family. And I know they don't share the same opinions that I do in a lot of things. Some of them are secondary, some of them not so much. And so even this week, as I'm preparing this sermon, I was challenged by this. And I asked myself, when I go and I spend the next four or five days with them, am I going to speak up and stand up? Or am I going to be passive? The gospel of Jesus Christ, souls perishing is not something to be passive about. It is my hope that we would commit to the one and only gospel, that we would preserve this gospel, that we would be unashamed and bold in the way that we proclaim and share this gospel for the glory of God. Let us pray.